0: You're listening to an Irreverent Podcast.
1: For more unholy content from our friends, head to irreverent.fm. Hey,
0: friends. Wow, Stephen, what does is, the men interrupt me at the beginning of podcasts? I'm going to keep this in. I'm going to continue to keep this in. <laughs> Welcome, friends, to the Speaking in Church podcast. I'm Josie. And I'm Spencer today um spencer tell the people before we introduce our our guests what is happening with you (laughs)
1: uh friends i have a cold yeah it's not COVID. it's just a cold um and the way that i explained it to our friends just now is um when i would normally have a cold i could just go about my business kind of thing but because i am carrying a child and this human inside of me is sucking the life out of me the cold is just a lot harder to deal with so you specifically likened it to
0: the man flu, because we know yeah. that men do not do well when sick. Yes. Uh, I'm just going to add that in there, because you know, I just gotta. But. The man flu. <laughs> Anyways. Today we are joined by the super cool Stephen Hale, the, who is the director of operations at a great organization called Inalienable. Josie approved. Uh, Stephen, we actually met because you've come to preach at my church couple, a couple times now.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, I've been uh buddies with your, your new pastor for a few years. We went to seminary together. Wow. Yeah. Seminary. Mm. Yeah, you know what they Pretty say? Group. Uh don't let it be cemetery. So I don't know if you've ever,
0: <laughs> I've actually that. never heard that. I've never heard that either. Wow. Wait,
2: really? I think that is a Pentecostal thing. Growing up Pentecostal. We, that's what they would say.
1: I think oh, it's, yeah. I think it's because a lot of the people we have on our podcast that go to seminary are women mm. and women going to seminary, like for so long was not a thing that women are like, yay, seminary. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I'm also Latin Pentecostal. So, you know, things are a little different in Spanish, but yeah, that's neither here nor there. Stephen you've listened to our podcast a little bit, so you know the deal. We Uh want to know your life story, your testimony. Tell us all about you.
2: Man, so I uh, already spilled the beans. I grew up uh, Pentecostal. My dad was an on-again, off-again Pentecostal pastor and not very good at it. And um, moved around a ton as a kid. I lived in 29 houses in 11 different states before I turned 18. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's three too many.
1: Is this free <laughs> Is is this because you were a pastor's kid?
2: That was some of it, but no, my dad was just kind of an unstable guy. All right. Great. Yeah, yeah. He he uh, died when I was seventeen, and my life got a lot more stable at that point. Oh, that's not that's. A good yeah, <laughs> yeah. I uh, I was trying to think. Is there a nicer way to tell this story? And I'm like, nah. This is what happened. Yeah. Um. So, anyway... Yeah. Right. And so when I was um, I got a job at this music store in Clovis, New Mexico, and everybody's like, oh, New Mexico, that's a really beautiful state. And I'm like, I wasn't in that part. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> um, but Clovis was like a, you know, small town, like 30,000 people. And in towns that small, kind of at the edge of the Bible belt, um, you this was like late nineties. So your local music store is where everybody turned to for help with like their audio sound system. Right. So we got to know all the churches in town and, um, my boss at the time was kind of, a he might he probably would call himself like spiritual, but not religious kind of person. And, um, you know, when nobody else was around and it was just the staff kind of hanging out, he was not above pointing out, did you see this church down the street? They they finished that new building. I'm like, right. We're familiar. He's like, yeah, marble bathrooms, I'm like marble. Hmm. That seems Maybe that's a lot, you know? And so I spent a few years kind of thinking like as a good Christian boy, it was my job to defend Jesus from, from my boss. Mm. (laughs) Then after a couple of years, I was like, yeah, I don't, you don't, you don't have to defend Jesus. And two, I don't, I'm not sure Jesus disagrees with Tony. And so that kind of led to, um, I kind of like started this period that probably now we would call deconstruction and started like wondering, I had this real frustration with the church, but I also really believed that there was something about Jesus that was like an answer to the world's problems. And, um, but I didn't quite know how to put all that together. And so there was this, um, I used to hang out at the local Christian bookstore because, I was that guy, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
1: Was this like a family owned one or was this like a. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was okay. a local one. Yeah. Owned by own, I'll give a travel you, agent. Yeah. I'll better. give
1: you a pass because it was a locally owned bookstore. <laughs>
2: Oh right! I'm gonna introduce it that way in the future at a locally owned
1: bookstore. <laughs> yes. If, if this was if this was like family Christian bookstore, I would have been like 100%. A life or whatever. Yes, yeah, I would have been like no. Yeah. yeah,
2: content was exactly the same, but it was independently owned. So <laughs> Supporting that's where, small. Yeah, that's where I learned uh, uh, about John Piper. Um, oh so no! Oh no! There's that. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, so there was this. Um, they had just moved locations. And so there was this missionary that was like on furlough and had just got back from Thailand. He was in Thailand and he was painting this mural in the new building. Right. And so I was like missionaries. Now, those are the people who know how about, you know, Jesus's work in the world. Right. So I used to go sit under his ladder while he was painting. It was like, he was painting the ceiling sort of, and I would say things, I would literally say things like, Hey, um, so, what did God teach you in Thailand? And like, no hello, nothing. Like that was the that was the opening line. <laughs> and so come to find out, he'd had like a miserable experience in Thailand and his oh, people no. like turned on each other and he didn't like people a whole lot anymore. So oh. yeah, he was mostly trying to get rid of me too. So he finally said, Have you read and started giving me the names of a few books to read? And he was not a conservative evangelical.
1: Mm. Ooh, nice. I spicy.
2: I know. It was spicy. And the books he gave me were also somewhat spicy.
1: Yes, yes, uh,
2: yes. Uh, um, so he had me read uh, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Do you guys know this book? No, but now I want it. Yeah, I'm like, oh. sounds
1: like something I would like.
2: It's so good. It was, um, I think Christianity Today called it like one of the 50 most important books for evangelicals in the 20th century, something like that. All
0: right.
2: So yeah, very much written to an evangelical audience, but by this Christian economist who teaches at wherever Tony Campolo used to teach in Pennsylvania somewhere. Um Anyway, so the, the book, like the first third of the book, he's showing all of the times in the Bible that it says, take care of the poor, take care of the poor, take care of the poor, take care of the poor. And so by the end of reading that, I was like, geez, man, like that's, he's not just making this up. That's really in there. And it's in there a whole bunch. And so that really kind of messed with me growing up in this tradition that was very focused on saving people from dying and going to hell. And then the second big section of the book, um, was him leveraging his, you know, uh, training as an economist to help you see like where global poverty is at the time. And man, that book shook me upside one side down the other and, um, yeah. So then a few years later, so I, I was, it was really starting to think about that kind of stuff. Then a few years later, you guys might remember the one campaign when Bono was real active. Oh yeah. Yeah. And for like five minutes, evangelicals were on board with global poverty and stuff and the early, early Bush administration. And, uh, and, um, Jeffrey Sachs, this um, famous economist wrote this book called The End of Poverty. And it was on the cover of Time and Bono thought he was great. And so I read this book and Jeffrey Sachs, I now know is a ridiculous optimist about our ability to like impact global poverty. But he was pretty convinced that we could like come close to eliminating global poverty in like 15 or 20 years if if the whole planet just really decided we were going to do it. Mm -hmm. And man, so I I feel like from those two books, I had this, um, man, um, if I was a Wesleyan, I might call it a calling, you know, like this calling from God to be interested in this stuff. And so, um, I went to college and studied, um, my degree was actually in social sciences, but it's flexible enough. You can kind of do a lot of different things with that. And what I really tried to study was, um, global poverty and global economics, And so I went to Honduras this semester in Honduras, um, studying all these development agencies and an organization called the association for a more just society that focuses on like legal questions instead of, um, material poverty questions. Um, and, but then also like compassion international projects and stuff by the Mennonite committee and, um, all that stuff, Oxfam, stuff like that. Right. So I came back, um, finished college, um, went to seminary, kind of to hide out from the um, recession. That was like 2009, right? So I'm hiding from the recession and finished seminary and uh, had to get a job. And I was like, well, I only actually know how to do two things that they can pay. One is how to sell guitars. And the other is, I guess I've got this fancy theology degree now. Maybe I could get a job as a youth pastor somewhere. So I... I, uh, was like, I don't know if I want to work in a church, man. And then I was like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe, but maybe there's a church that doesn't suck. And I was like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll go look. And then I was, so I had to make a list of all the churches that sucked. And so <laughs> 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 that started with anybody who was into reformed Calvinism I was like, no, mm-hmm. automatically, which, you know, that's where I was and might have been a little, was that a
1: lot of them. <laughs>
2: Yeah, that's that's like most of the churches right there already. So um Methodists didn't wind up on the list. So I wound up working at this Methodist church on uh in Orange County, um, this Chinese American church.
0: No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
2: And they shared a facility with another church. And so um, my office was right next door to the youth director's office at that church. And that guy came to be real important in my life. His name was Arturo Rodriguez. And as I get to know Arturo, he realizes what I had done in college. And he's like, hey, we should hang out. I am working on this project that you might find interesting. And um, that project is what became inalienable. So, yeah. So the rest of the story, I kind of feel like now, you two, I'm sort of pushing at the boundaries of your format because now I want to tell the story about inalienable, But I've come to the end of my personal story. <laughs>
0: Well, now I feel like you just uh, to tell us the story of an alienable.
2: Yeah. I I do just want to put in there
1: I feel like recently a lot of people are like is this just a Methodist podcast now? I swear it's not. We just all Listen, I have a firm believer that everyone finds their way to the Methodist at one point. Progressivism happens to be Methodist, I guess.
0: <laughs> Maybe the rest of y'all should really get your fucking acts together. All right. Anyways, inalienable.
1: <laughs> yes. Tell us the next part of the story.
2: Just... I wondered if you guys had any opinions on anything like, about just, your life. Just like uh, no, just anything. Like I, oh, I've been okay. listening to the podcast, and I wasn't sure if you had opinions.
1: I what? oh, <laughs> hmm, interesting take. <laughs> really? <laughs> have you really been listening? <laughs> <I don't know.
2: laughs> So inalienable. So, <laughs> so I'm to find out Arturo, you know, he went to college at Azusa Pacific university. Uh, oh, um, that place. I, Have you guys I heard of that?
1: S- y'all, I swear this is not, this is not <laughs> sponsored by APU or the Methodists. I Probably swear, not
2: sponsored by APU. <laughs> let me tell you that. <laughs> and uh, when he was, when he was an undergrad, he, um, kind of volunteered and was like doing this short-term mission thing that APU was doing in action teams. Maybe. Is that, is that what they're called? Yeah. That's what they call them now. In, um, in Baja California in a town called San Vicente, um, with a guy named Dan
1: outreach.
2: Yeah. (laughs) That's what that one is. Mexico
1: outreach is what that whole, any any trip from APU that goes to Mexico is a part of overarching Mexico outreach that okay. APU started and also partners with local churches that do yeah. it consistently.
2: Yeah. <laughs> ah. But anyways, okay. we digress. Yep. Anyway, right. So um, so he then, you know, he got to be a youth pastor later. And um, you know, you guys have been around enough to know that youth directors and youth pastors are expected to just provide a summer mission trip, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. part of the deal.
1: Nothing like taking 13-year-olds to build a house, right? You know, <laughs> I mean,
2: you gotta you gotta leverage what you're good at. And yeah. is a 13-year-old good at except architecture? Mm-hmm. So, so he, he kept going back and they would what they and they were doing the same kind of stuff that you, you think of every little mission trip does over the summer. They were like painting schools. And, mm-hmm. um, I think, uh, Dan Valentin, their contact down there had started this like gymnasium thing for the benefit of, I think all the youth groups and the churches in town would get together and have youth group together on Friday night or something. Mm-hmm. And so we, they would work on that facility, things like that. And then one day um they're down there for their week and Dan comes to Arturo and says, "Hey Arturo, can I borrow one of your vehicles? I got a got a thing I want to I need to take care of." Arturo's, "Sure, I guess." Uh and so Dan says, "Yeah, come come with me and bring a bring a couple of people with me." So they they get in this van and they drive farther south than Arturo had ever gone before. And they go to this thing, Arturo, Arturo had no idea what he was looking at it, but it's these long, huge sheet metal buildings, like the size of a football field. Um, And then there's like six of them. And as they get closer, they realize that there's doors about every eight feet. And as they get closer, they realize there's not doors, there's doorways with like fabric hanging in most of them. So then they get out um, and Arturo goes with Dan and they they walk into this room and they knock on the, you know, the sheet metal front and um, and they go in and Dan talks to the mom who's standing there and Arturo notices there's this boy laying on a piece of fabric in the dirt, because that's what the floor is made out of. It's just a dirt floor. And Arturo is quickly putting together, wait a second, that a family lives in this room um, and something's going on with this kid. Um, he had seizures and mom had like made her peace with that, but he also had a fever. And so she was getting a little bit stressed and wanted to take him to a doctor in, uh, Ensenada, which was like three hours away or so. So Arturo says, sure, I guess, you know, so they, they get in the van, um, go to Ensenada and Arturo's like processing this on the way. He's like, I think there's a medical system in in Mexico. So we'll probably just go to the public hospital and I'm going to learn some stuff today. So they go to the, the public hospital, the Eames hospital is what that's called. And um, they're turned away for a paperwork issue that nobody really understood at the time, but that's fine. There's a lot of private doctors in Mexico. So they take the kid to a private doctor, um, get a prescription, go pick up the prescription and um, take this family back home, drop the family off. And then they're, this group that's with Arturo like stops for tacos and they're finally like alone enough that they can kind of talk freely and be like, what the hell did we just see? And, and somebody starts a conversation there that continued for years, but the conversation was essentially, we come down here every year for a week and like paint schools and stuff like that. What if for that week, we do whatever it takes to do something about whatever the hell we saw today. And, and somebody finally says, what if we don't worry about the week? What if we just figure out what it takes to do something about what we saw today? So I met Arturo maybe two years into that conversation. They were trying to fi- They had come to realize that there were these labor camps of migrant farm workers, um, that worked in this valley. This valley is called the San Quintin Valley, sort of. It's, like, at the edge of it. And it's, like, 150 miles long, and it's just massive industrialized farming like we have in Central California. Um, And these farm workers are brought up. They're indigenous persons from the south of Mexico that are brought up to work in these fields, right? And so uh, they they're realizing, wait a second, these people are like definitely being exploited. And as they get to talk to them and realize more about what's going on, like often they're not being paid. Um, they're expected to work in horrific conditions. They're expected to live in these God awful conditions, things like that. And so they they went through a few ideas. Um, they tried a few different things. And then over time, um, uh, then then met me, right? And so I had at least a tiny bit of experience with that stuff. So... What we, um, what we kind of realized was that a lot of this stuff boils down to a lot of these people don't have uh, proof that they're citizens of their own country. Mm-hmm. Um, they're Mexican, born in Mexico, still in Mexico. Their ancestors are Mexican. Their ancestors were there before Hernan Cortez, you know, and, uh, but they, they can't prove it. And so um that is that was the genesis of inalienable. We took a lot of the the stuff we've been reading, like William Easterly and postcolonial lit and stuff, and we're like, can we is there a way that we can intervene here that meets these standards that we're we're kind of reading about and like we value, but now we have to figure out how to walk it out. And and I I'm I'm really thrilled with, with what we've done so far. So since then, that was, um, we incorporated in 2014 and we spent the last five or six years really working out a few ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we've got stuff that I'm, I'm really proud of and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about, but I just feel like I've been talking a lot and it's your show.
0: Um, well, that's why we have guests so they can talk on our show. So
1: um, (laughs) this is a very important topic because, Christians love to go places for a week when mm-hmm. I love what you said about how about we stop focusing on the week and focus on how do we solve a problem <laughs> like for real mm-hmm. um, yeah so that's awesome
0: and as a little Mexican girl I appreciate what inalienable does and I'm very critical of organizations let me tell you I really am yeah but what oh yeah I really am I didn't I, know if, is I believe that, that? Well, What what do you like about inalienable I like that you're not going to down to Mexico for a week and building a house that my people can build for their own fucking selves.
2: <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but they have nails in Mexico. Yes.
0: yes. And laborers. Yes. <laughs> they have Home Depot in Mexico. Actually, everybody don't
1: know <laughs> if you were aware. <laughs> the money that you spend to send these kids to camp, you could pay people, uh, a living wage to yeah. actually, uh, do labor that they're skilled to do. And, uh,
0: yeah. Yes. I think this is the part where
2: you tell us how inalienable works. So you have to imagine that you're applying for a job. This is the easiest way to understand it. You're applying for a job. You, you want the job, they want to hire you. And they're like, great. When can you start? You're like, I can start on Monday. And then they (laughs) say, okay, fill out these papers. So they hand you the papers and you're like writing your name and you're writing your date of birth. And then there's a, box where you're supposed to put your government ID number. In the United States, we use a social security number there, maybe a driver's license number. But here's the problem. You don't have that number. Um, it's not that you have the wrong number or a number from the wrong country or anything. You just, you don't have, you never got a government ID number. So you, you can't take this job because this employer is going to pay taxes and stuff and they need to know where to send it. Um, and so you, you're sort of trapped and there's a ton of people in this position where they don't have official registration with the government and it's, it's almost unheard of in the United States. So, so I think we don't think about how important it is to be able to demonstrate your citizenship, but like everything hinges on this, right? So you can't get a job in the formal economy. Um, you're going to have difficulty accessing public care unless you, you just happen to be wealthy and you can pay for it, but you're probably not because you can't get a good job in the formal economy. Your kids may have difficulty going to school, all this stuff, you know, and you sort of wind up trapped in this situation and it's got nothing to do with character or anything. Like it's, it was just a thing that happened.
1: And you're seen as a foreigner in your own land. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, man, our, I met this woman once that this had happened to, and she told me, uh, she didn't tell me directly. Um, She, when inalienable staff was like meeting her, she's telling the story of how she realized she didn't have a birth certificate this all hinges on birth certificates. Ultimately she realized she didn't have a birth certificate. She goes to the government office and she's like, Hey, can I get that thing printed up? And they say, Whoa, (laughs) you're like 20. No, we can't just like magically make you one. That's not at all how this works. And they like refused. And she walks away and she says, that's the day I began to feel invisible. Mm -hmm. Dang. Mm -hmm.
0: for those of you listening and don't understand how this happens in mexico you have unincorporated areas you have villages you have people living remotely and people are born in houses in their own villages in their own parents houses my dad Born in a village, born at home. It happened to be a little bit more established, so there happened to be somebody to give him a birth certificate. But it happens. You think of indigenous communities, and they just are far away. They don't have access. It's like a basic human right that they just happen to not have access to. And yeah. so what does Alien Inalienable do to help these people?
2: So all we do is we have caseworkers that... Uh, work with folks, uh, to go through the paperwork process, Mexico, like most countries cares a lot about this problem. Um, and they, they're doing a lot to work on it. Um, but as you can imagine, in any government. It's like uneven, right? Mm-hmm. And certainly in a in a government in a developing state that's like got funding problems and things like that, right? It's it's uneven. Mm-hmm. And so, literally, what we do, our caseworkers find people and we figure out where they are, what paperwork they do have, and then what it takes to get them to the right people. And sometimes that means going before a court and things like that, so they can get a birth certificate, which is the yeah. most boring sounding thing in the world. <laughs> I get like. It like, you know, I think it's powerful.
1: Well, and this is what you were talking about of like focusing on like legal and like just actions instead of like physical, because obviously like we were talking about, like you could have, whether it's people from other countries come and build houses, or we send money to pay laborers to build their houses. Like those are things they need and needs that need to be met, but how do you break the cycle when they're trapped in it? And so that's literally what you're doing is you're starting at the root cause of you need this one document that could change your whole life Mm -hmm. and you don't have a way to get it. So let's help you get it. And I think that's like, I've never thought of anything like that. Like I've never heard of this problem. And so, like you said, when you're talking about things of like, I think we focus so much on like, how do we give them food and housing when we don't even understand why they need food
2: or housing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Dude, Spencer, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah.
1: This
0: is why this is so near and dear to my heart, it's because a lot of people who do not grow up in the first generation context don't understand that there are people in the United States no matter your political beliefs, actually, I don't care about your political beliefs, because I'm gonna say one side is wrong. But there are people in this country who work that don't have social security numbers. My dad, my parents were those people for a long time, they did not have social security numbers. And they were here working in the US. And you know, it, it happens, employers will hire you, they will use your cheap labor. Um, but it was very difficult existing without those types of papers. I mean, I had it and my siblings did because we were born here and we had access to the systems that gave us those types of things, but it is a very difficult life to lead in the U S let alone in remote parts of Mexico that are, not developed as much as they are here.
1: And this, this feeds into the perfect example of, you know, when people are like, why don't they do it legally? Mm-hmm. How are you supposed to do it legally when you never even receive documentation from your own country? Mm. Like you have nothing to show the United States government. And so like, there's so many loops and hoops to jump through with that. And I think even like, like that's solving a problem now of like people that live in Mexico that maybe do want to come here. They have family here. And they're like, I'll never get there because I don't have documents. Like, Hey, this is another issue that we're solving. It has a ripple effect
2: on so many things. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the thing. It doesn't like, it doesn't solve anything directly. Like a birth certificate doesn't mean you get a good job. It doesn't mean much, but it like, it set, it like opens doors and restores like basic human access to all this stuff. So Mm -hmm. you've at least got the opportunity to try, you know?
0: Yeah. Because in Mexico, they do have a socialized medicine system. And if you don't have your papers though, you can't access it because they don't know who you are. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, other than the emergency room, kind of like here. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the emergency room is a shit show here, so you know. <laughs> I'm curious, Stephen, how you feel as somebody doing quote unquote missions work and in like the most ethical way possible, in my humble opinion. How do you feel about other types of mission work? You know. <laughs>
2: i i don't know i'm an enneagram five so i get stuck in my head a lot Mm -hmm. but i i i here's what i want i want i want churches to ask what does it take to actually love my neighbor and mm. think, think that through more carefully. Right. Cause the problem is not a lack of sometimes maybe it is, you know, I think, I think we often think, but missions, man, it comes out of this really good place. It comes out of this really good place, but it's like, it's half thought out and mm-hmm. you know, that's not, that's not good love. Right. So I think sometimes we have to love better. Um, and yeah. right. Like if, with my wife, you know, I just I decided what I thought she liked. And it was like, it's it's gonna be her birthday. And so I just decide what I should get her as a gift, you know. And and come to find out, I I buy her a link lint biscuit album and I get home, and you know what? <laughs> one, <laughs> nobody buys albums anymore. So I should have thought that one through. And two, <laughs> you know, she's not a lint biscuit fan, you know, but I did it out of love. But I I kind of did it out of this like poorly thought out love. And Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's the, at the core of what the church does. I think we do a lot of that. And then I think we do a lot of stuff that's actually self-serving, but we distract ourselves into not noticing that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like this. I'm trying to say this politely. It's, (laughs) it's like going to Africa hugging the little babies in an orphanage, taking your cute little picture and then leaving or like This is the part that is impolite, like this fucking little asshole kid that decided that he was going to go to an unreached tribe in India, or I think it was India, and he was going to go convert them, he was going to expose them to all of these diseases, and all of the, because they're unreached, they don't have any contact with the outside world, but he decided that he was the one that was going to go save them and expose them. I mean, he was ultimately killed because they were very protective of themselves. Uh, they're but... the ones on the island. Yes. Yeah, uh, I
2: heard about this. I think mm-hmm.
1: that's. I think it was in a, actually in like Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. Like somewhere more in like the Oceania area because it was like a very remote island. Yes, and I felt like how selfish of this kid
0: because ultimately I, like you want to you i want to think and some of us want to think like oh yeah he just wanted to save them for God or blah 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 blah. but i'm like so you're just going to wipe them all out with your stupid uh, western diseases like how is that fair how is that just how is that showing somebody love
2: and compassion yeah yeah it's yeah it's like half thought out or mm-hmm. like the thing you said you guys you brought them up a few times these house builds right and mm-hmm. like a lot of those house builds happen in this valley where I work. And so I see them and I've noticed a few things. One I've noticed Mexicans don't build houses in Baja, California out of wood. They build mm. them out of cinder block. I, mm-hmm. I don't know, but there's probably a reason there's reasons people build things in certain ways in certain places, but when it's Americans it. come down, they do it out of, out of plywood. Why? Mm-hmm. Because you can build a house in a week if you're going to build it out of plywood. And it's cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that's uh, probably true.
1: If it's similar, I live in Tucson, uh, Arizona, so the desert southwest, similar climate. In in the older parts of the city, brick houses are very common because before air conditioner was like in everybody's home, brick houses keep things cooler. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that's probably why they would build with cinder blocks or similar materials because I highly doubt they have air conditioning. And so that mm-hmm. helps keep things cool. Oh, that's mm-hmm.
2: interesting. I had no idea. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. Like they're, they're, it's just like, you just need to think about this just a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit more and decide what your real goal is. You know, are you really, are you really going, here's the other thing. The other thing that they say mm-hmm. is when I start pointing this stuff out and I'm like yeah, doing the math on a trip to Africa versus like just hiring construction workers in Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Anytime I bring this up with people who, with, you know, Christians, youth ministers, people like that, right. They always, always pretty close. It's, it certainly feels like always they often at least say, but it's so good for the kids, for the American kids. Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> it and this is coming from somebody, y'all, I've talked about this before. I've been on mission trips. I've been to Ditto. South Africa, and I've been to India. I give Josie a pass because she went to a white country. <laughs>
0: I went to Ireland. I went to Costa Rica. Just,
1: okay, yeah. All right, all right. I went to a white uh, family in Costa Rica. <laughs> and and I think this is where um, I've seen a lot. There's two kinds of mission trips. There's the kind of mission trip where a church has never been there or goes like every few years and kind of what we talked about. They go, they do something, they feel great about themselves. They pick up and leave. They show their church a bunch of photos and then they're like, good for us. And then there's trips that have maybe like, whether it's like a dedicated missionary family that they go and visit like every year, every other year, or they have like a partner organization that their church consistently fundraises for. And then people go to visit that organization. And I think both, both can be done better, but I feel a little bit more comfy with mm-hmm. the consistent partnership ones, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. because it it shows that at least you're recognizing that like, us just going somewhere random is not doing anything like there needs to be consistent work being done to meet needs. And so Um, again, that's just me trying to like probably make my own self feel better because I went on those kinds of trips where I was like, we didn't just show up somewhere, we went to like an established place. Yeah. But those are kind of the two popular ones I see.
2: I think there's a lot of merit to that. That's my opinion, as I think there's a lot of merit to that. We used to, when we were doing the short term trip, Arturo used to talk about mutual blessing. And he thought that was Mm -hmm. one of the things because it recognizes the humanity in the people we're going to go work with mm-hmm. right and like f- changing the way we talked about things in itself changes the way you think about things you know and and then the other thing you talked about was like I, there's nothing I'm going to do in a week that's going to change things yeah um that's going to do better than the people who are there doing good work year round. Mm-hmm. So, what inalienable did with our short term trip is we would we partnered with organizations and actually mostly the same organizations year after year. And we just we didn't actually try to help migrants on the short term trip. We actually tried to help the organizations that help mm-hmm. the migrant folks. Yeah, and we found that that was a lot better. And you get like these relationships. And we had youth that would come almost all of them. All. That can't be true. Lots of youth would come year after year after year. And then, like the first year, you still kind of have a little bit of that, you know, you're just so overwhelmed with being dislocated and stuff, but come mm-hmm. year after year, you de- you're developing real relationships, maybe not quite like friendship might be an exaggeration, but they're real relationships with people. You know their mm-hmm. names, you know they're something about their family, and they stop being other. No. So much. i, I th- I'm sorry.
1: I was just going to say, I think like context of who's going on trips is important too, because mm-hmm. we talked about like taking a bunch of young teenagers that have no business doing certain <laughs> kinds of manual labor, like is different than like one of the, one of the trips I went on when we went to India, we were specifically working with, um, like differently abled children that like lived in like the slums and went to school and through this organization. And so on that team, we specifically had like, the people on my team were like social work majors, like applied sciences. So like wanting to be like physical therapists, like very much like these are things we study and we're going to go and actually have some sort of knowledge. Like, obviously they're not going to know everything. We're going to a totally different country and everybody's different, but it, at least we at least had some background training to like, when we encounter situations, like know how to like respond to things versus mm-hmm. like I said, like it's when you take like a 13 year old to Africa or to India or other countries that they have no experience with any of this. It's kind of like overwhelming it for both people. It's not good for the kid. It's not good for the people you're supposed to be serving. Like there's no context in it.
0: Yeah. It's kind of like at APU, there was another team and action teams. Cause I worked for the office. I was very well aware of everything. <laughs> I was deep in the mission trip, nitty gritty. But we had this team who went to Namibia, and they were all computer science majors and they went specifically to help the country of namibia Namibia get their um medical record infrastructure online. Oh that's cool, I mean, yeah, very practical but and I like that model, but my issue comes to when. I noticed that lots of churches and organizations help only if there is the possibility of proselytizing. Uh And I don't like that because I feel like, sure, if you think that the world needs to know about the Lord, power to you. But that should not be the sole reason why you're doing something. You should be helping people regardless of whether or not they decide to convert. But that's not always the case.
1: Yeah.
2: I wish I had something to contribute, but yes,
1: <laughs> I I think it's um, again, like when I going to South Africa, like the the area of South Africa we were in, lots of people were already Christian, mm-hmm. so it didn't feel like a I'm gonna go and spread Jesus. It really felt like a our our primary reason to go there was because, APU has a South Africa campus, so this was one of those um nonprofits that they just consistently worked with and so i went during the summertime for a month and we helped the organization they were developing um hiv like awareness workshops because mm. there's so much misinformation about how hiv is spread and so they're like we want to teach teenagers that like holding hands does not give you HIV. Like <laughs> what actually gives you HIV and what you can do about it. Because a lot of people still think that getting HIV is a death sentence when that's not true. Mm-hmm. And so that on that trip, like I said, it I very much was like, cool. I don't have to like tell people like, you need to know Jesus or else, which felt yeah. good. And then when I went to India, a very not Christian country, the organization we worked with was primarily, um, Like it was a Christian run organization. It had ties to young life, which I have mixed feelings about. But again, Mm -hmm. who did they serve? They knew that they served non-Christians and they they didn't turn them away because of that. Like they had like their youth group kids that would come and they're like, yeah, these kids are Christian, but these kids aren't, but that doesn't matter. We still just want to hang out with them. Like it's not a deal breaker. They get our services regardless kind of thing. Mm. I think that's nice.
0: I think that's cute. I just don't want people going to my fucking country to build shitty ass houses. (laughs) We build them a lot better.
1: (laughs) And there are some organizations that if you don't sit through their service, you can't have their services.
0: Oh uh, (laughs) yeah. And downtown LA, I'm looking at a lot of you homeless homeless organizations. All right. I'm talking directly at y'all fucking assholes have a lot of opinions can you tell Stephen? hey
2: i was wondering if you guys had any opinions
1: <laughs> <laughs> so would Stephen, would you say that you're that like are you guys religiously affiliated or is it just like
2: not um, technically meh? no in practice um most of the um all of the founders are christian in fact most of us work at churches but <laughs> but the organization is not religious um mm-hmm. a lot of our staff has been secular people <gasps> the
0: seculars oh
2: my god uh, yeah gosh. man but we've had some our staff has been so cool is yeah. it um
1: i think this is interesting because i like i don't know if anybody else has experienced this but there are certain times with certain people in the church that i've experienced that like like contributing to like non-religious nonprofits is like seen as less or like not as good as like Mm. contributing to a christian foundation which i think is really dumb
2: (laughs) i was really really worried about that when we incorporated because we wondered should we incorporate as a religious organization or as a you're not a secular the it's on the tax form it doesn't read that way but we were what do we do and i kind of thought that because that's kind of what i grew up with is oh they're not you know, and there are certainly, I'm sure there's churches who are not interested in supporting an inalienable, but that's okay. They probably wouldn't have been that interested in supporting us if we checked the other box on the tax form anyway. Right. <laughs> I've been true. surprised how many churches are interested in um, mm. talking to us and, and working with us. So that's, I've been surprised. It's been that's, great.
1: That's good. Because like you said, I've definitely, um, you know, if it was like there's the christian food pantry versus just like the
2: just a food but pantry. like county
1: food pantry yeah it's like well we have to donate to this one instead mm-hmm. well, and i'm
2: like because they have the christian food
1: yeah oh it's it's blessed the food
2: that will
0: save you mm. yeah
1: I don't, I don't
0: understand that and i'm the opposite i generally am very wary of christian organizations i'm like have to really dig deep into them because I feel like there's less accountability. If it's attached to a church, having come from churches myself, you know?
2: Yep.
1: Yeah. There's just (laughs) less, there's just less questions asked about where this money or where these donations actually go to, Mm -hmm.
2: uh, you know, and the, yeah, I mean the nonprofit world has, has a history of like a lack of account, less accountability. And they've been working on that, especially in the last 15 or 20 years. But, but man, churches often is even, even less. And I just like, I want accountability, right? I want somebody at the mm-hmm. end of the day, at the end of the year to say, Hey, so people donated you this many dollars. Like, where did they go? You know? And I should have a good answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's a chart. Okay. Here's receipts. If you really want them, you know, I yep. like, It's very reasonable.
1: I 100, no, I was going to say I 100% agree. I have, uh, my uncle is not a Christian and, and we talk about this all the time of one of the reasons he's very wary of like, like giving money to churches like my aunt tithes and he like obviously he's not he doesn't like not let her do that but he's kind of like i wish churches would just tell me like what are they using my money for and i Mm -hmm. asked him i was like i was like if a church like flat out told you they were a business would you be more willing to give money to them he was like not that i'd be more willing to give money to them but maybe i'd feel a little bit better because there'd be less secrecy about things (laughs) he's like Mm -hmm. you know i just want you to be honest like what you're spending it on because when i donate to a general fund like what does that even mean
0: yeah that's true um i've noticed that people have been donating more since i've been putting the pnls in my church uh weekly newsletter i have noticed that people like transparency Mm -hmm. Ah, well steven we've loved having you this is a great conversation yeah thanks and if you ever want to come back and shoot the
1: shit again, uh-huh. feel free.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Pick a new topic. <laughs> like, or if you want to invite uh, your colleagues, your friends and yeah. share more stories, oh. we would love that. Oh,
2: man. Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. That's a great idea. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's think about how to make that work.
0: I love it. Well, Steven, tell us where the people can donate all the money to y'all. When they have all the money
2: or if they only have a fraction of all of the money they can donate at inalienable.life that's the confusing part inalienable.life or um on facebook there's a donate button on facebook which is again you search for inalienable.life our logo has this famous uh, handprint thing mm. and then um Instagram, we're probably inalienable.life there too.
1: <laughs> probably.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, I should know the answer to that before I go on podcasts. We yeah. love it. Or if you want to contact me personally, you can email me at stephen.hale at inalienable.life. Wow. Yeah, I Consistency. know.
0: Consistency. We yeah. love it.
1: Well, Spencer, where can the folks find us? They can find us on Instagram at speaking in church. They can find Josie at Josie takes the world and they can find me at Spence Rose. And if y'all want to send us an email, uh, we're at speaking in church at gmail.com you want to come on the pod send us a dm and we'll chat yes
0: we love people coming on the pod obviously um yeah send steven all your money we love it josie approved speaking in church approved sorry spencer didn't ask for your permission is that okay no i i think it was clear through our conversation i approved so okay great, great, great great not steamrolling here all right friends stay woke or get woke and jesus loves you bye